Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today, the Ides of March, Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, commending to you our April issue now available online at commentary.org. If you're a subscriber, you, of course, have complete access. If you are not a subscriber, shame on you. Go subscribe. Good way to support the podcast. Good way to get uh, the best articles published in America on almost every topic. Um, we have uh, Eli Lake's uh, dazzling piece uh, called The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. We have Josh Moravchik on Putin's American Apologists. We have Joseph Epstein on Two Forgotten American Jewish Women Writers. We have uh, Christine Rosen on how um, the media are focused on trauma to the exclusion of all else. We have Jonathan Tobin with an amazing piece on the effort to turn the Holocaust into a source of popular true crime material in the form of the Diary of Anne Frank, and Seth Mandel taking his second shot at the Anti-Defamation League and its appalling behavior on race. Um, And with us today, I'm going to do this backwards. Our guest today, commentary, a tech commentary columnist, Jim Meggs, and his piece on uh, how Germany's behavior in relation to uh, it, oil and uh, nuclear energy and everything has helped lead it to the horrible pass it finds itself in in relation to Russia and Ukraine. So Jim Meggs, welcome to the podcast as ever. Nice to be back. And, uh, of course, with me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So that's commentary.org for all of your April commentary issue needs. And, of course, that's also where you go to commentary.org slash live podcast to join us on April 6th in Palm Beach for the live taping of the Commentary Magazine podcast. Uh, Everybody, um, we are in, you know, entering in the third week, fourth week, whatever, of the horrible hostilities in Ukraine. Um, And we have all kinds of weird, um, questionable stuff going on about Ukraine and, uh, not Ukraine, Russia and America and Iran. Uh, Sergey Lavrov, the chief negotiator on the Russian side for the Iran nuclear deal, claiming that the United States, he has it on paper, that the United States will allow Russia basically to evade sanctions uh, if, if, uh, if those sanctions somehow come crosswise of the goals of the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, if should America get around to announcing that we are, in fact, still pursuing uh, the Iran deal, which I cannot believe that we are, or can be, or will be, in part largely because of this very finding. But um, but if so, uh, it will be a staggering um, breach of every conceivable notion of why we are embargoing Russia uh, for its, um, you know, illegal, immoral, and monstrous invasion of Ukraine. Uh Noah, thoughts? Yeah, I'm, uh, I was, I'm as skeptical as you are. Um, however, some of the administration's behavior 
does seem to suggest that they're so wedded to the idea of some curing something that vaguely resembles a JCPOA that they're willing to make some very uh, detrimental sacrifices when it comes to our national security and the sec- national security of our allies. Late last night, uh, unnamed sources speaking to, I forget the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, one of the two major papers. Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. Uh, we uh, suggested that in an Iranian missile strike with missiles originating from Iran that appeared to target a U.S. installation in Erbil, in Iraq, um, was actually targeting exactly what Iran said they were targeting, which were covert Israeli facilities operating inside Iraq. Um, oh, that's, that, if, that's actually the New York Times. Yeah. New York Times. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know if that was true. I don't know if this is true. I don't have the intelligence to suggest it one way or the other. If it is true, how dare we expose that facility an Israeli facility operating inside Iraqi territory. Um, if it's not it's, true, what the hell are we even doing creating a fiction that conforms to an Iranian narrative? So either of these two possibilities are unacceptable and demonstrate believe, the, the, the administration's way, willingness to make profoundly ill-advised compromises in pursuit of an Iran deal. I mean, the weird thing is that the whoever this U.S. official is was confirming a a report in the official Iranian news agency, which claimed to be targeting, you know, Zionist targets. And so why are we doing this? We're doing this to say, no, no, it's okay. We, we can go ahead with the JCPOA because the Iranians are really only firing on an Israeli. And we don't have to retaliate base. kinetically. So we don't have to retaliate. We can keep going. And I think the weirdness here, Abe, is um, uh, continues uh, is a, is more a continuing reflection on a uh, a policy breakdown inside the Biden administration, which Walter Russell Mead writes quite brilliantly about today in the um, in the in the Wall Street Journal, and so does Elliot Cohen in the Atlantic, which is, as we pointed out last week, the whole fight over the Polish MIGs was a, f- a public an open public squabble between the defense department and the state department and there is literally a branch of the executive branch that was created to prevent exactly what happened from happening which is the national security council which is supposed to be a place in which these internal foreign policy and defense and military conflicts are adjudicated and a single policy for the entire administration is formed and then followed by both parties. And there apparently is a massive policy breakdown. And we see this here too, which is the entire focus of the federal government or the Biden administration should be on Russia and Ukraine. And there is this side group that is obsessing over the Iran nuclear deal uh, that is now retailing information to try to save the deal. Uh, And that shouldn't be happening. I'm having, uh, I'm being re-traumatized. It, it's very reminiscent of like 2014, 2015, when John Kerry was trying to cut a deal at any cost with the Iranians. And then we would get reports back uh, from the, people would leak from the IAEA saying, no, they're, they're the inspections regime they're talking about is not up to snuff. And then the administration would say, no, that's not true. It's, it's going to be fine. And then the Iranians would say, well, we have one piece of paper that says this, and uh, then the administration, the American administration at times said, well, there are several, there are different versions. There are several different versions of the, of the 
uh, JCPOA being floated around. So it's exactly like that, which scares me because what all that pointed to was um, the fact that the administration wanted the deal at any and all cost and would accept every degradation of anything resembling a strict regime or a good deal. Abe, you, you brought up John Shanzer's piece from, I think, a year ago about how the administration was alienating Saudi Arabia. Today, we get news from uh, Riyadh that they're considering accepting uh, yuan, yuan, however you pronounce it, Chinese currency, uh, for uh, oil shipments over U.S. dollars, uh, which contributes to something that we were talking about with Eli, the idea here that this Russia conflict could help facilitate the creation, the establishment of an alternative monetary system, which is something that China has actively been pursuing with its own Chinese version of SWIFT. Um, and Saudi Arabia seems to be willing to at least entertain the idea that they'll play ball here. So I, I, in, in good faith, I can imagine that this administration and even the Obama administration was deeply concerned about the prospect of conflict, particularly Israeli-Iranian conflict over their nuclear program. And that's perhaps coloring their, their views as they try to cobble together this deal, but to the exclusion of all other terrible possibilities, like the idea of an alternative financial system that uh, bifurcates the world in much the way the Cold War did with two very competing monetary systems. So here's we're talking about energy and the power, the continuing power of conventional energy sources uh, and their effect on uh, world politics, which is obviously to be seen in the fact that this ga gas station uh, with a nuclear uh, arsenal attached to it um, is, uh, you know, feels itself powerful enough to invade a neighboring country and not be and and managed to use that nuclear arsenal as a means of keeping others from preventing their onslaught into the country. And that's where we get to Jim Meggs's piece in the April issue, which uses Germany's feckless and frankly demented behavior on energy over the last 10, 15 years as an object lesson in how we got to this point. Jim, you want to tell, tell the folks all about it? Yeah, starting really in its early stages in 2020, Germany decided that it wanted to lead the world in the route toward a zero carbon economy, particularly getting all the fossil fuels out of their electricity production. So they've invested billions of euros, some, by one estimate, maybe 500 billion euros in mostly wind and solar and infrastructure around renewable energy. At the same time, they've been shutting down their nuclear plants. Nuclear has never been very popular in Germany. The Green Party really grew out of uh, the anti-nuclear movements of the, remember the no nukes uh, demonstrations. They were bigger in Europe even than they were here in the US back in the 80s. And they still have a lot of power and they, um, they're opposed to nuclear power almost on quasi-religious grounds. It just seems wrong to them. And so Angela Merkel then, after the Fukushima accident in 2011, announced that they would be shutting down their nuclear plants even quicker. The upshot of all this is bad in several ways. First, they haven't succeeded in decarbonizing their economy uh, much better than the U.S. has. You know, U.S. is supposedly this this climate outlaw, but our carbon emissions are coming down. Germany's are coming down at about the same rate, but they're paying much more for, for it. And as they close down their, their nuclear plants, 
the renewables haven't been able to keep up. Uh, and so instead, they're still burning a ton of coal, very dirty coal in some cases, and they're burning a lot of natural gas. And this is something you see a lot with renewable energy because it's constantly going on and off unpredictably. You need these natural gas power plants that are pretty easy to scale up and down to fill the gaps. Well, where does that gas come from? It mostly comes from Russia. Uh, Germany actually banned fracking. They have some fossil fuel production, but of course they've done everything they can to limit it. So they get uh, about half their coal and about half their natural gas from Russia. And you'd think that with all this renewable investment that those numbers would be going down, but they're not. So it's, uh, they're really put themselves in a terrible pickle. And then at the beginning of this year, they closed down three of their last six remaining nuclear plants. The rest were scheduled to close by the end of the year. So even as their, their gas and coal consumption were going up, as they saw the moves that Russia was making that were very intimidating, they still went ahead with this absolutely boneheaded, purely ideological push to close down their nuclear power plants. And you have to think that Putin pulled some lessons from this. He must have watched Germany's behavior. And Germany is the worst offender, but Europe as a whole, France accepted, uh, has been on a similar track. What do you think Putin concludes from this, that he's got him over a barrel? A barrel. Oh. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, I'm, I'm curious because you said this purely ideological argument, and I agree. Um, it seems like Europe and Germany in particular have bought into that argument, this idea that we have to move to renewable green energy in order not to be beholden to places like Russia and to, and to fossil fuel production for the environment, blah, blah, blah. That's an argument that the Biden administration is now trying to double down on, given the conflict in Ukraine. And Americans have never been as um, enthusiastic about embracing that. Um, we still have some nuclear power. Our, we've never had anything like a Green Party in this country. Every effort to make a kind of broad, sweeping ideological claim about the environment like the Green New Deal has flopped. So I'm curious uh, where you think that message is uh, domestically. And if you think Americans are what, what lesson America is learning by watching what's going on in Germany right now? Well, I hope we're learning the lessons. You know, the renewable idea is very appealing to people, both because we want to put less carbon in the atmosphere, but also if you're somewhat suspicious of, of high technology and, and modernity in a sense, you know, and you yearn for a more natural lifestyle where everybody gets their organic food from the local farmer's market. I mean, I, I, that appeals to me too, to some degree. Renewables really fit in with that idea. It's just energy from the sun and the wind, and it sounds so so much gentler, you know, than our nuclear power. But the fact is, it just doesn't work very well as the backbone of an energy system. It can be part, and, and that's great. And prices are coming down for wind and solar, and that's great. But it's very difficult to make it the, the main source of power in an electricity grid, as they're finding out in California, which is sort of the US's version of Germany. They're, they've been the most aggressive state. Uh, in trying to go all renewable and also closing down nuclear power plants. And as a result, they are suffering under very, very high electricity prices. Their grids become unreliable and prone to blackouts. And they're importing a lot of energy from other states, including coal, you know, energy from coal plants in other states. So 
I think the message is appealing for people who don't follow it very carefully. You know, it, it naturally sounds like a nice thing. So I, I think a lot of people who are not really immersed in the issue are are likely to think, yeah, that sounds good. We'll be independent. You remember, as I wrote, a, I guess, last year, the piece about why I blame Jimmy Carter for the renewable focus. The whole idea of renewable energy is not the renewable part isn't what's important from an environmental point of view. What's important from an environmental point of view is, does it make pollution? Does it release a lot of carbon? That's what we should be caring about. But, but the renewable idea came about as a matter of energy security. It was more of a form of economic nationalism. Like nobody can embargo the sun, Jimmy Carter once said. And so if we can have all our energy domestic, wind and solar, then we're safe from you know, these international problems. Uh, it's an appealing argument, but at some point you have to look at how your policy is working and the policy just doesn't work that well in Germany or here. And you're being very gentle towards people who, who have decided that they will not accept or understand the limits imposed on lithium ion batteries by physics, what on-demand power generation is, where we get the materials for batteries, you but know, the, nice. when I was growing up, there used to be a very big campaign against strip mining. Yeah, and all of a sudden, right. everybody's cool with strip mining now, as long as it puts a battery in your cell phone or your Tesla. Well, only, well, if, it's, know. only if it's in other countries. I mean, there's a yeah. precisely yeah. one of the world's biggest lithium deposits is in Maine. But a few years ago, they passed uh, a, a state law that essentially outlaws mining in the state of Maine. It makes it so right. difficult. There is a there is a um, there is a. It, I believe it's on the Nevada, California border. There's a mine that they're trying to open. And of course, activists are protesting against it. So everybody loves the idea of electric cars, but nobody wants the mine. You know, nobody wants to mine yeah. the lithium. No, they're happy for to that mine. matter. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, they're happy to mine in, 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 in South America, you know, uh, Africa. in the Amazon. Yeah. Remember it, how it, the it, Amazon is so threatened and our rainforests are threatened? That's they would have to cut down half the half the rain half the rainforest um, this, to get this is part of a lot of that a lot of those deposits to make right. lithium ion batteries. The, this the, is the, part of the um, the kind of moralism of a certain kind of environmentalism, the non pragmatic environmentalism that you know we want to be pure and do everything the right way. Except we're actually often just exporting the pollution to other countries, mining right. lithium, cobalt, rare earths, all these things. We don't want to get our hands dirty, but we need all these materials in great quantities. And, and right, no, as you say, this idea that we're going, all going to convert to electric cars in the next five years is just completely impractical from the point of view of where all this material is going to come from. There's um, another contradiction sort of pretzeled up in all this um, when you get to the nuclear power question. So, you know, France was dead set against uh, 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 Germany, rather, was dead set against nuclear power. Wake of Fukushima, it announced was closing all these. It, as you mentioned, Jim, in your piece, it closed down the last three, uh, three of the last six of its of its uh, nuclear power plants. And uh, people, activists, and and those sympathetic to this idea generally, um, are fearful of uh, nuclear energy, not based in anything resembling. Uh, facts about its security. Nonetheless, there's a great deal of over overlap among those people and the people who, to bring it back to our first part of the conversation, want to deal with Iran that would allow Iran to use uh, nuclear energy 
peacefully. Right. Can I can I also move this conversation to make a, a, a an ancillary point about the apparently now failed nomination of Sarah Bloom Raskin uh, to be one of the governors of the Federal Reserve. So this is a very interesting minor story. Her nomination has effectively now been torpedoed by uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Senator Democratic Senator from West Virginia, uh, on the grounds uh, that she, uh, and, and here's why, because at, this gets to the interesting point of the ancillary effects of politically correct or progressive policies. So she would be a governor of the Federal Reserve. And what she wants to do is use the Federal Reserve's regulatory powers to privilege cli- matters involving uh, taking positive steps toward uh, cli- toward ending climate change. So uh, this means she wants to figure out ways to reward banks that do uh, take up policies that involve funding mechanisms for things that might help with climate change and the like. She wrote a long piece for Project Syndicate on this. She was an Obama administration uh, uh, treasury official uh, and or maybe she's a, a Biden administration. I can't remember. And her husband, Jamie Raskin, uh, is, you know, a leading uh, progressive co- congressman from Maryland and, uh, you know, a big poobah in the impeachment efforts and all of that. Um, and what Manchin so Manchin's saying, uh, this is crazy. That's not what the Federal Reserve is for. And uh, and besides which, you know, I'm from a state that, you know, whose main uh Economic driver is, of course, not is are, are precisely the coal deposits that climate change activists want to kill off. And the notion, obviously, one of the ways you would do that at the Federal Reserve, you could, is somehow make sure that um, you know coal mines couldn't borrow, or you know, or or or, t- or take debt against their against their holdings or whatever it was. And. Uh, that is not what the Federal Reserve is for. The Federal Reserve is for managing, we now know because the Federal Reserve is gonna be the most important federal agency in the world, at, at, not that it hasn't been for the last 15 years as it's created Q, you know, uh, quant, uh, you know, quantitative easing and tranches to help us during the financial crisis and created this bottomless well of money. Um, and, uh, uh, but now, you know, it's going to be called upon to deal with the inflationary spiral and how we're going to deal with that and whether we can choke it off without causing a recession and all that. And here, the Biden administration's first major appointment to the Federal Reserve wants to use the Federal Reserve for an entirely ancillary or tertiary pro- when we have a crisis with inflation, which is why we have a Federal Reserve. And also we have a Federal Reserve to shield the money supply from the politics of the present moment. That's why we have it. That's why the why we have separated out the uh, creation of money and the money supply from daily and uh, politics and taken it out of the executive branch and all of that in order to have some independence from the politics of the present moment. And so uh, this is a version, Joe Manchin once again seems to have saved the Democrats from a genuinely psychotic policy choice of politicizing the Fed on climate change. 
this is a trend, really a global trend in a, a, a lot of, um, of governments and, and international organizations. It's the effort to use tools beyond government regulation to affect certain kinds of environmental policies and changes. And one of them is, is agreements among major investment companies around the world to um, prioritize investments into renewable energy, to stigmatize investments for traditional energy. It's very effective too. I mean, it's very hard, for example, to get loans to build, say, a natural gas power plant or a coal-fired power plant in much of the less developed world. So we have our you know, very much first world priorities about what kind of energy system we think people should have. And environment environmentalists who advocate this are seemingly pretty comfortable with telling people in poorer countries who don't yet have electric power that that that's okay. They should set up a couple of solar panels or something. And in some areas solar panels work great, but you know, poor people need access to energy. They shouldn't be cooking in their homes over open wood fires and suffering all that indoor pollution that kills millions of people every year. So it, what, what she wants to do with the Fed is, sadly, it's a global trend. The EU has a whole series of rules that, that, um, that basically give a green light to certain kinds of investments and make other kinds of investments uh, very, very unattractive. And so it's, uh, this, is, this is happening around the world. And I think it's, it's an alarming uh, trend because it shows you that, that certain ideas can get powerful. They don't need to be voted on by the public. People get together at the annual COP uh, co climate conferences and other, other meetings, and they hammer out these, these agreements and standards. And you know, investment companies talk about their socially responsible investing. It all means that something other than the market is going to be at work here. And I am maybe something of a libertarian. I am not opposed to all government regulation, especially in environmental areas. But it should be something that is arrived at democratically. Well, that and that's the key, right? This is actually part of a broader trend, certainly among progressive ideologues in this country, that when democratic means do not create the ideological ends you seek, you find extra democratic means. You attack people's ability to raise money online. You attack the banking system they might be relying on to fund their own uh, activities. You do you you attack a publisher's not not a publisher, but you attack their their distribution network so that a book you don't like cannot get into bookstores. This is actually a tactic that's been widely wildly successful in kind of the culture war aspect of, of life. But the idea that it would that it's a global effort with climate change is also worrisome. But th those techniques do work um, not by and nobody gets to vote on them. The regular person suffers the consequences without having a voice. It's totally it's not entirely related. But this conversation reminds me of um, the summer of 2020 when there was a legislative effort. Elizabeth Warren led a legislative effort coupled with uh, you know, agitation in the Washington Post from Jared Bernstein and others uh, to legislatively compel the Fed to abandon its mission of targeting, uh, making sure that we have the optimal conditions for full employment, stop targeting the overall unemployment rate, but focus on black unemployment as a means of uh, uh, closing the wage gap and ensuring that uh, African Americans have uh, privileged access to employment opportunities. Um, that was the politics of the moment. It failed, and but it was a, there was a legislative, a democratic attempt at least to get the Fed into the business of anti-racism. Well, I, I think what's interesting here again is so that was in fact subjected to uh, to the 
Republican Democratic. I mean, Republican in the sense the of process. the Republic, the American Republic. Um, uh, you know, judgment as is Sarah Bloom Raskin's nomination. That's why we have advising why the Senate advises and consents. And again, I think uh, we have uh, Joe Manchin uh, dealing a blow, a, a blow for sanity, uh, because um, this is something you, you wouldn't think that the, a nomination to the Fed would be something that could end up being a political issue that could damage, you know, Joe Biden politically. Um, but uh, the Fed, again, is about to play uh, the most important role it's played in American life, yeah, since 2008, and certainly maybe since 1980, 81, 82, uh, in, in, in seeing what it can do <clears throat> to um, nip uh, inflation in the bud using the tools at its command. And um, uh, the, it's an interesting uh, cognitive point because I was reading something on this last night that uh, it is true that for most of our adult lives, for the last 20 years, the uh, response to crises, financial monetary response to crises has been to, to loosen, to increase the money supply and make it easier to get loans and capital investments. And the opposite can be true too, that you have to reduce the money supply in a crisis. Right. And well, I mean, because nobody's it, it, experienced it, it, that in right. 20, 25 years. Well, there were liquidity crises. That's the crisis of 98. Uh, right. Yeah. No, the, every crisis famous, in this century has been a liquidity yeah. crisis where they yeah. wanted to you know, make sure that everybody was borrowing and investing and keeping as much economic right. activity going as possible. So the credit didn't didn't dry up. Right. But you remember the that the most, you know, the most celebrated person in all of American government before Anthony Fauci was Alan Greenspan. Uh, until 2008, because he ran the committee to save the world, you know, they they intervened uh, when there was a credit crisis in Mexico. They intervened when this hedge fund in uh, Greenwich, I can't remember what it was called, long term capital management or something, went belly up in, two th in, in 1998 and seemed to suggest that there was going to be a massive financial meltdown and they gave themselves he and the Robert Rubin the treasury secretary all this but he was the greatest mind of all time and then when when the financial meltdown happened in 2008 he was like Jed didn't see this coming and it's like oh great fantastic you were supposed to be the guy who knows everything so drop dead uh, we're through with you and Alan Greenspan's name once like as I say once kind of with a halo over his head is now I wouldn't say it's mud but you know he he ain't you know history is not recording his 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 interventions kindly we're about jay powell and the governors of the fed are about to become world famous in the united states and like they're going to be household names the way paul volcker was household name because he is going to either be given the credit or the blame for what happens over the next you know over the next year uh, in terms of inflation um let me uh take a pause and talk to you guys about our first at our first and only advertiser today, Bolin Branch, Noah's Sheets. Noah loves these sheets. I'm not going to make him talk about it. So I'm going to tell you that he loves the sheets. They're buttery. They're smooth. They're pretty. Uh, they are. They. They're uh, the fitted sheets are 17 inches deep for perfect. Uh, I'm sorry, that's my dog barking. Uh, for uh, to make it easy to fit. They're made to a higher standard, 100% organic cotton, ethical production, thoughtful attention to every detail. And they give you a fair price plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Uh, they're not too hot, not too cold, the perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. And uh, they use 100% sustainable raw materials for the soft and light sheets that make you forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud. 
So experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 50% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary checkout. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary, bowlandbranch.com, promo code commentary. Um, Jim, as our as our COVID correspondent, uh, we are uh, uh, there is as we basically move beyond COVID, and as it turned out to be very easy to suddenly live in the post-COVID era when there was another world crisis that superseded it. Just as we were uh, raising all these restrictions, it's interesting to know how people would have reacted uh, with harsh COVID restrictions in place as Ukraine was was blowing up because the last time we had a world crisis while we were still in in restrictive mode people just ignored restrictive mode right that was uh, post george george floyd and post george floyd i don't know what i don't know whether there's any connection there because we haven't had like rallies of millions of people but maybe we would have had rallies of millions of people had we been locked down under covid anyway um with the fact that everything is loosening up and schools are, Christine's kids are about to go unmasked to school tomorrow. My kids are unmasked at school again. And uh, we're still, for some insane reason, uh, masked on mass transit. No one can explain why, uh, because the CDC is sucking up to whoever it needs to suck up to. Uh, now we're getting reports of coming variant, very dangerous, BA2, a new variant. And, um, and guess what? There's a political angle. Noah, there's a political angle to the stories about the rise of this more contagious variant than Omicron. What is that political angle? Well, we're just getting word today that um, basically it's all the Republicans' fault. <clears throat> I mean, you can just kind of default to that. But uh, so last week, the um, uh, Congress passed a uh, budget omnibus bill. Um, and one of the things that was stripped from it was another tranche of COVID aid. Uh, it just couldn't pass. There was there was not su sufficient support for it. Democrats tried to move their own separate bill for new uh, COVID aid, and it just didn't budge. And now to any sentient observer, that would suggest to you that the political will for more money on the three the $6 trillion pile just doesn't exist. And why it doesn't exist? Because the COVID crisis as a national emergency is over. Uh, flash forward to today, and it turns out that those Republican efforts to uh, cap the amount of aid that we disperse for COVID-related uh, issues has forced the White House to prepare to, quote, stop critical COVID response efforts. They're just out of money. They have no more money. We're out of money. We're out of money, people. And really all you have to do, there's um, private trackers all over the place, but one of the best is the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, which tracks COVID response aid. And you know, I'm just looking at the top lines right now. And in terms of legislative aid of the $5.76 trillion that were allocated legislatively, not, a, not the Federal Reserve, not the executive branch, just legislative aid, 5.76 trillion was approved. 5.06 trillion has been dispersed, which leaves you $700 billion just sitting around doing something. And that's well, we don't to have say nothing money, of the administrative Noah. aid, which is roughly 170 some odd billion that has not been dispersed um, there either. So the first thing that comes to mind 
is a very um, odious uh, example of how the executive branch tries to punish uh, the public to demonstrate that their political adversaries are terrible people, namely a, the gov a government shutdown in the Obama era where the Obama administration's uh, efforts to make it hurt as much as possible, including shutting down national parks and uh, shutting down uh, access to national monuments in Washington, D.C., just the most visible possible examples of how you can make this sort of thing painful to make a political point. Um, we know it was a political point entirely because in the Trump administration during uh, government shutdowns, they did everything possible to make it as painless as possible. And it turns out it's perfectly possible to shut down the government without making it as visible as you possibly can to the American public. So this strikes me as the, the uh, Biden administration doing the most cynical possible thing in order to make a political point about Republicans and their stubborn refusal to pass more, more money for COVID than we've already passed, which is having a profoundly inflationary effect on the economy, reducing your purchasing power and is not necessary anymore because the national emergency is over. And according the to most, you, we're seven tenths of a. We have seven tenths of a trillion sitting around, undispersed. Maybe, maybe, maybe all that money to is say nothing of the five trillion, the five trillion that has already been dispersed. Where did oh, all that the money go? Oh, that doesn't count. Forget that. That was already spent. That's gone. Where did it go? That money's gone. That's in your house and in Bill's house. And in <laughs> but that um, is not. I don't think that is the most cynical response that that the that the administration could come up with see if they really wanted to show how there's a new variant coming and we're all in danger because of the republicans they would change their posture reimpose mask mandates right that's how you get on the other side of this well they have uh, extended the federal transportation when you still have to wear them on planes and trains and you know mass transit so that's yeah, still mid april so right. they they extended it another 30 days and we'll be revisiting that um jim meggs ba2 wastewater is showing uh, uh so they have sites where they measure wastewater and the amount of covid in wastewater apparently 31% of these sites have found an increase in, in COVID BA2, uh, like a 100% increase. And of those 31% of sites, 30% of those sites, so we can, I don't know how we, you know, a third of that third, either the, I don't, I can't do the math, it's a ninth or whatever, have seen increases of 1,000%. Uh, in the COVID in the wastewater, which says, by the way, that seven seventy percent of these sites are not showing uh, this increase for reasons we we don't properly know. Um, but they do say that it's on the one hand it's more contagious than Omicron, but less uh, less dangerous than Omicron. They think. Um, and so if it's less dangerous than Omicron, but more contagious, and Omicron was more contagious, but less dangerous than Delta, and uh, Omicron spread with, uh, you know, except to the unvaccinated, which is always the thing you got to say, except for the unvaccinated, Omicron was a very ineffectual variant. Um, I mean, I got it. My family got it. Lots of people have gotten it with absolutely, not even totally asymptomatic. Um, so it's not as though this is like alarming news because in that sense, except for the unvaccinated, 
What do you uh, what do you make of? I mean, I, I saw this on ABC News this morning on Good Morning America. It's like it's coming. There's uh, the wastewater shows this, and uh, and there's going to be no money spent by the government to fight this new variant because the budget didn't pass last week. Because all that other fighting has been so effective. Um, first of all, BA2 is a, is a subvariant of Omicron. It's not, it's got a few different mutations, but it behaves in very similar ways. It's got good marketing though. You know, in, initially they branded it the stealth variant. So it sounds like something, you know, that's a villain in a Batman movie or something. They, um, it is a little bit more or somewhat more contagious according to some studies in, in Denmark. And as you say, less, uh, not particularly uh, uh, dangerous for the vaccinated, roughly similar to, to Omicron. So that's good news. But it's replacing the original variant of Omicron. And this idea that we're going to have this massive new wave, it's not being borne out by the data. It's as as uh, BA2 spreads. It's but in early March, I don't have numbers for today, but in early March, it was about 11% of cases up from 1%, you know, a 100% increase <laughs> um, um, a, a few months ago. And yet as it's spreading somewhat rapidly, uh, it is, um, our case rates are dropping precipitously. I mean, our uh, case rates are down uh, nearly 50% just in the last two weeks in the U.S. So we're you know it, i'm not you don't want to trivialize this we're still seeing 1200 people a day die of of covid uh, which is pretty pretty stunning we're going to see a million victims probably in the us by the time this is all over but we're not seeing ba2 really change the overall trend of this disease what do we know about those 1200 people we know one thing about those 1200 people they're, they're not vaccinated all un, they're all unvaccinated yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it, it, there. Is, I, I believe there has not. I mean, there has not. Uh, likely, I saw this last a variety week. of comorbidities as well. Well, yeah, but but let's just say they're unvaccinated because the number of vaccinated people who have died in the last four months is, I mean, is is. I can't say negligible because that would suggest that you know a death from COVID is negligible, and I don't want to say that, but it is vanishingly small. So they, these are unvaccinated people, and we are back to this question of whether or not after all this time, after a year and two months of the vaccines being available, if you get it and you get sick from it and you die from it, who's at fault? Is this something that the society has to involve itself in as a public health matter? Uh, it's It really, the longer this goes on, the less and less case can be made that other people have to be made to behave in a certain way in order to prevent its spread because who whom it spreads to uh, are the are, are the unvaccinated and of course it doesn't spread to kids who are not vaccinated and all of that as as we know but at this point even unvaccinated people omicron infected so many people that that a lot of of unvaccinated people, uh, you know, likely who, the majority who didn't of get sick from it. Yeah. Uh, but no, but the, but the majority, yeah. I mean, a lot of people got Omicron who weren't vaccinated, who didn't get that sick. Uh, right. You know, people who aren't, but they aren't now have older. antibodies. 
and but they're well protected. The the, yeah. the Delta and all the previous COVID antibodies work against BA two. The the initial Omicron variant uh, antibodies are very effective against BA two. So it's and when I say an antibody works, it doesn't mean you don't get sick, but it means you don't get very sick or your body's better positioned to to fight it off. So you know between the vaccination rates and and infection rates, there aren't that many people left. But what's sad is the people that, that haven't gotten sick from anything and haven't gotten vaccinated are still, and they're going to remain highly vulnerable to this. And that's not going to end until every single person has gotten it. You, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that I, I barely heard about BA2, to be honest. And I, it occurs to me that that is um, because uh, had the administration not sort of had its state of the union we're moving past this kind of moment. And of course, <clears throat> without um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, something like this, even a new subvariant, the the fear messaging would have been much bigger, right? Because um, there were there were variants in the past that didn't pose, uh, that didn't impact the general trend of of the uh, of the pandemic in, in in such a big way. But nonetheless. There were still rampant headlines about possibly kids get sick this time. It could be worse. We don't know. We need to see more time because it was all in keeping with trying to sort of keep in place a certain understanding of of uh, COVID mitigation where we were then. There's a weird um, there's a weird right. social and cultural pressure, I will say that. Uh, and, and I'm seeing it obviously firsthand with the unmasking of my kids getting to unmask tomorrow is first day they won't have to wear a mask in school. The school sent out this thing about, you know, oh, we have to treat everyone with respect if they choose to have their mask or they choose not to have their mask. But of course, if your friend asks you to put a mask on, it's a nice thing to do to respect them, like all this weird kind of propagandistic messaging to try to, to pressure children to keep those masks on. And you see that you're going to see a lot more of that in the high fear areas that where we've always seen more restrictive COVID measures as more and more of these uh, measures are gone. And that's, uh, again, long term, if we ever need to mask up again, that's going to be a problem because that kind of coercive sort of uh, propaganda that, that we're seeing all the time is just unhelpful for getting people to see this as here's a technique like, like, you know, washing your hands if you sneeze into them. Here's a technique to prevent the spread of illness. Nobody can see it that way anymore. It's so culturally and politically frightening. My, my okay. favorite thing is the, the effort to say, you know, people who want to wear a mask, you shouldn't judge them. You can't judge them as though people who didn't wear a mask or didn't want to wear a mask weren't subject to the most ruthless judgmentalism and assumptions about your entire background and parents and, and uh, friend groups and every kind of kind of judgmentalism can be heaped upon you. Now it's time to reserve judgment. Um, one that thing we correct. haven't talked about is the Chinese response to this, which is very serious. Uh, China is putting uh, upwards of 75 million people in full on 2020 style lockdown uh, in, in response to this new virus. And it's having e economic impacts here. Uh, we saw the price of West, Te West Texas intermediate crude collapse, not, uh, even amid the pressures on the based on the on the war in Ukraine, because of an assumption that demand for fuel will crater uh, as a result of, uh, again, more supply chain problems and more uh, lockdowns in East Asia. So there is oh, and at least comically that. and comically Elon Musk announced that Tesla was going to be increasing prices on the basis of an assumption that this lockdown was going to cause a disruption in the supply chain for lithium and batteries and other and other rare earth things that are needed for for the creation of the electric car. 
So uh, that that hilarious thing that Pete Buttigieg said last week or whoever said it, uh, you know, when Stephen Colbert said it, it's like, I don't have to worry about gas prices. I own an electric car that cost me one hundred thousand dollars. Pete Buttigieg saying, you know what, if you have problems with your gas, get an electric car. Yeah, because people can just sell this thing that they own that is worth, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars at a huge loss and then buy something that costs twice as much and that's going or that to you don't pray the cost of increase of increased gas prices or that you don't consume a single good or service like right. assuming that everything you buy and every service you consume comes to you via electric vehicle is staggeringly stupid yeah i i want to point out one last thing in relation to covid and the kind of slippery game that is played by public health officials. There's an exit interview with Dr. Dave Choksi, known in New York City, known because he calls himself this on the commercials that run endlessly on local television, calls himself New York's doctor. He makes a commercial a week, maybe two, maybe two. Although in this interview, he says, well, he's a very private person. He's a he's a very private person. That's why he starred in an ad campaign that put his face front and center. Obviously, he's going to run for office and and all of this. So, you know, take that kind of aw shucks, you know, shy nonsense with a grain of salt. But he says, where are one or two areas where you think the city's response really excelled? And what he says is our vaccination campaign. Uh, we we estimate that about 48,000 lives were saved over 300 thousand hospitalizations were averted and about 1.9 million cases were prevented how is new york city getting credit the public health for its vaccination campaign there was no local vaccination campaign that wasn't the way it worked uh you know in fact the vaccination campaign campaign here in the early going was incredibly badly administered and it was very hard to get appointments it was very hard for anybody to get a shot they you know um uh, it was hard for old people to get a shot, like to the extent that the city played a role, mostly it was state and then it was also federal. So you have this effort to claim that because vaccination works, your city's public, your New York City's public health department deserves credit for the uh, the fact that vaccination is effective. That was number one. And number two is a weird elision of the success of the vaccination campaign with um with other mitigation measures that frankly, we just have no idea whether they, they, they mattered or not, right? So effectively, he says, um, we considered it, uh, we considered uh, the, man, the restrictions and the mandates to be less cautious and more bold, bold with respect to protecting people. I actually think about all our public health measures as protections rather than restrictions and doing the things that even if they are sometimes unpopular or politically not as expedient that we know will save the most lives and prevent the most suffering until they can enumerate what if there is any way of trying to adjudicate or enumerate or go back and say what the mitigation measures did that saved lives the same way they come up with these numbers about vaccinations, they are just asserting the fact that their mitigation measures saved lives without any evidence. And you'll notice that no evidence is adduced to, to prove this. Uh, this guy who did two commercials a week and made himself a superstar in New York City, taking credit for that a vaccination campaign that was worldwide and 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 uh, America wide and statewide, and uh, of course you know saying that because that that was good everything they did the year before was also good. 
Jim, do you have any reaction to that? Well, yeah, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with how people perceive safety and risk. And one of the things you can do very easily is to argue for certain safety measures against an imaginary alternative, you know? So now there's very little evidence that lockdowns are particularly uh, effective and all these, you know, many things as we've looked around the world, it's really hard to establish how effective uh, these measures are. But you, you could always say, well, imagine if we hadn't done it, you know, it could have been so much worse. There's no data on the other side, typically. And so I think that is, uh, so it makes it easy for them to A, claim success, and B, it makes it hard to remove the measures. You know, as Christine has talked about, you know, the resistance of, for, in so many circles to let kids go uh, maskless. It's once you initiate the policy, then it seems reckless to take it away. Uh, and, and, you know, then if one person gets sick, it's like, well, you know, you killed that person because you lifted this policy as opposed to accepting that there are certain risks in the world that, uh, you know, fortunately they don't affect children very much, but there are risks in the world and there are costs to every measure. You know, we could eliminate car accidents if we had a five mile an hour speed limit. You know, we would have no car fatalities. We could do it. I mean, and if every life is infinitely valuable, we should do that. But of course, nobody wants to do that. And and it's we've been really subjected to, uh, I think, a somewhat alarming lesson in the limitations of our public health officials. I went into this pandemic expecting a lot more competence uh, from them and have been kind of dismayed and and disenchanted again and again by politicization uh you know and it's not that they're all incompetent there's a lot of smart people there but so often they showed an inability to keep up with changing information to communicate clearly and then a tendency to overreact often with for political reasons in in the advice they gave the public Okay, so very quickly I got to repeat this idea that I came up with yesterday because I want to I wanted to go viral desperate for it to go viral and that i'm saying that i want it to go viral means it will not go viral because it's like when people say they want to write a best-selling novel and then of course they write something and it doesn't sell because you can't incept a bestseller or a successful movie or something but anthony fauci do you have the milk carton where is anthony fauci he's like a missing child anthony fauci on the milk carton that's my meme if I knew how to make a meme, I would try to get a milk carton and put a picture of Anthony Fauci on it and say, have you seen Anthony Fauci? What happened to Anthony Fauci, Jim? He's gone. He's Casper. Somebody made a decision <laughs> that he'd, he'd overstayed his expiration date. But remember, it was like you couldn't imagine that was even going to be possible. Like he wouldn't he wouldn't cooperate with his own silencing because after all abe what what is he what he is, is science he is science he's also he yeah he's another reason i think that the the fear campaign about the the new sub variant isn't what it might have been uh you could well imagine him doing the tour saying we need to proceed with caution we don't know uh it's, it seems you know very contagious we just don't the truth is we don't know enough about its danger and all that well, so, and, yeah. and so, so, so whoever made the decision made the right decision. Well, and now Rand Paul's looking for him too, John, because he wants to remove his, he wants to, he's, he's drafting legislation to actually 
kill the position that Anthony Fauci occupies, like saying this wow. is <laughs> calling him a petty tyrant. Wow. Well, listen, you know, uh, those of you out there in commentary podcast land who are skilled uh, at um, at the uh, at the meme making, Noam, if you're if you if if you hear if you're within the sound of my voice, maybe somebody can make the milk carton and send it out into the ether and see if we can get something going because. But there's a pro- uh, there's an inherent problem with with trying to make this go viral. What? People don't want to see his face again. Ah, there we go. There we go. Well, ah, the manifold ironies of trying to of trying to corral public opinion. It's just uh, it's uh, it's beyond all uh, it's beyond all imagining. But what's not beyond all imagining is the April issue of Commentary. It's right there online. You'll get it in your mailbox in, in, a, in a week to 10 days. But if you can't wait for that, and I understand, please go to commentary.org. Um, it's one of our best. Uh, and uh, and I really, really commend it to you very highly. Jim Meggs, thanks for joining us as ever. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.